Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to episode 270 of the Family Medicine Rocks podcast for Thursday, August 16, 2012. On tonight's show, is primary care dead? No, of course not. But that's what they want you to think. I'll be reviewing three articles about this, one from the New York Times. Plus, there are social media opportunities out there to share your story about the significance of primary care to this country. And finally, I hardly ever do this, but I'll be reviewing a new podcast that found me this week whose host is a pre-medical student. All that and a lot more coming up on episode 270 of the Family Medicine Rocks podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, the president of the American Academy of Family Physicians, Dr. Glenn Street. Um, this year, one of my commitments and, and a great interest is to be more engaged with you as leaders, chapter leaders, uh, and, and our frontline membership. Uh, on, on Monday, a Twitter handle, I'm privileged to be the first one to hold, uh, at AFP Prez, P-R-E-Z, I already have 29 followers. I feel so proud. Um, I have a long, long way to go to catch up to uh, our current student board member, Kevin Bernstein, who has a little over 1,000, um, and our, uh, our king of family medicine social media, uh, Mike Sevilla, who has nearly 7,000 uh, members.
That's right. Welcome to the show that is passionate about medicine and social media. This is the Family Medicine Rocks podcast on a Thursday night here on the Blog Talk Radio Network. I am your host. My name is Mike Savilla, the newest Powerball lottery winner at $370 million. No, not really. <laughs> you can always dream, though. Hey, what is this show about? Hey, this is a show by a family physician for the growing family medicine community, of which you are now a part of this by listening to this show, so welcome. I encourage you to uh, check out my digital library of stuff at familymedicinerocks.com. And uh, shout out to everybody following me on Twitter there. All, uh, let's see, uh, 9,976 people follow me on Twitter. Thank you so much for that. And uh, shout out to also everybody who uh, likes the Facebook page for this show, all 466 people. Thank you so much uh, for that. Today is Thursday, August 16, 2012. It is 9 p.m. Eastern time. And uh, here at Family Medicine Rocks World Headquarters, it is uh, 74 degrees Fahrenheit. And uh, we have a great show for you here uh, this evening there, kids. Uh, How's your week going? And, uh, you know, as I always do, I thank you so much for the support for this show, listening live and also downloading the show. We are you know, always in the uh, you know top 25, top 15 in the category here, uh, here on the Blog Talk Radio Network, and uh, I very much appreciate about that. And that's why we'll be playing yeah, just a couple of uh, Elvis songs here. Uh, uh, today is the uh, 35-year anniversary of his passing, and uh, I've been reading a lot of uh, uh, stories out of Memphis uh, this week, and... Uh, so, uh, so yeah, so we'll be, we'll be talking about that on the Saturday show. That's right, party people out there, all the party people. Shout out to all the party people out there. I've already scheduled the Saturday night show. Uh, the, the, uh, the night shift show has been scheduled for uh, Saturday, August 18 at 9 p.m. Eastern time with my good friend and co-host, Kat. That is uh, a lot less serious than this show. And uh, we talk about entertainment stories. We just chat it up and have uh, fun on a Saturday night. So, uh encourage you to check it out live or, as always, to uh, download it on the podcast. And I remind you, you can subscribe to this show on iTunes, so you don't have to worry about downloading it. It just uh, automatically comes to your computer. And you can also register here at the uh, Blog Talk Radio site here. Uh, And uh, you can also sign up to get reminders for live shows, which I know some of my fans do out there. I appreciate that. Uh, and if you didn't know, uh, I was put. Uh, I try to put out a, a small video segment uh, of this uh, of this show on the Facebook page. So that's another reason why you should like the Facebook page uh, for this show. Uh, and finally, in this segment, I want to give a big shout out to our friends at the Future of Family Medicine blog. And it was just announced in the past uh, 15 minutes that they were nominated for the most fascinating student blog of 2012. And uh, there's a voting process uh, for that, and uh, just uh, head out to futurefamilymedicine.blogspot.com, and they should have those details up soon so you can vote for their blog. Uh, so on the show here tonight, I'm going to be talking about uh, primary care. I'm going to be talking about this doctor shortage that you're talking about in the press, including the uh, New York Times, and also have an article from The Atlantic, and also an article uh, from our good friends, um, at the healthcare blog, so we'll be talking about that. Also, we're we'll going to be talking about a couple of uh, social media opportunities where you can share your story on how you think uh, primary care is uh, affecting this country and can change 
uh, our broken healthcare system. And also during the show here tonight, I never do this. I hardly ever do this, but I'll be re- reviewing a podcast, uh, a podcast that found me this past week. It's called the Lost in Pre-Med podcast. And what's that about? We'll be talking about that later in the show. Uh, but first, I do want to thank Blog Talk Radio for having me be a featured host here on this very network. Thank you so much for that. I've been a social media hobbyist since 2005. And uh, did, you, did you know at the end of this month will be the five-year anniversary for this show? Can you believe that? I have been doing the show every week, you know, but, uh, you know, five shows, 200, uh, five years, 270 shows, that's not, uh, not too shabby, not too shabby. Hey, and if you're curious, yes, I am a, a real doctor. I am a family physician, full-time private practice, meaning I see patients five days a week in the office and in the hospital here in beautiful northeastern Ohio. So now I will uh, take my break, and after the break, we'll be talking about uh, primary care. We'll be talking about advocacy. We're going to talk about this doctor shortage uh, press and uh, some other things. Uh, so uh, you're listening to the Family Medicine Rocks podcast, the unofficial podcast of the Family Medicine Revolution. What's that about? Just Google FM Revolution for more details. And also a member of the ProMed Network of Podcasts. You can get there by going to ProMedNetwork.com. And we'll be right back. That's right, Family Medicine's leading voice in social media in my own mind. This is the Family Medicine Rocks podcast. My name is Mike Sevilla. Uh, so let's talk about some of these articles here, just from the just, just even from the past uh, two weeks. Here we're talking about primary care. We're talking about family medicine. We're talking about you know physicians in general. I'm going to start out with this article here that's caused a lot of buzz here on uh, Facebook and Twitter and in the primary care community and the uh, Family Medicine Community. This is from the New York Times. This is from uh, July 28, 2012. This is by Annie Lowry and Robert Pear. The title is Doctor Shortage Likely to Worsen with Healthcare Law. And this has been talked about e- even when the uh, Affordable Care Act was debated and passed. And I'm going to be reading sections of this article starting right here. In the Inland Empire, an economically depressed region in Southern California, President Obama's health care law is expected to extend insurance coverage to more than 300,000 people by 2014, but coverage will not necessarily translate into care. Local health experts out there will be uh, doubt. Local experts doubt there will be enough doctors to meet these, this area's needs. There aren't enough now. Other places around the country, including the Mississippi Delta, Detroit, and suburban Phoenix, face similar problems. The the Association of American Medical Colleges estimates that in 2015, the country will have 
62,900 fewer doctors than needed. And that number will more than double by 2025 as the expansion of insurance coverage and the aging of baby boomers drive up demand for care, even without the health care law. The shortfall of doctors in 2025 will still exceed 100,000. Health experts, including many who support the law, say that there is little the government or the medical profession will be able to do to close the gap by 2014 when the law begins extending coverage to about 30 million Americans. It typically takes a decade to train a doctor. Later in this article from the New York Times, it says this, Moreover, across the country, fewer than half of primary care clinicians were accepting new Medicaid patients as of 2008, making it hard for the poor to find even when they are eligible for Medicaid. The expansion of Medicaid accounts for more than one-third of the overall growth in coverage in President Obama's health care law. Providers say they are bracing for the surge of the newly insured in an already strained system. And I'm going to go off script here, just with a little bit of a rant, because I've been reading a lot other than this article and people out there having a little bit of outrage why physician-physician groups are not taking Medicaid. And I can tell you that our group is one of those groups. And it's not because we're rich doctors and we want to shut people out. It's not because, you know, we are discriminating against Medicaid patients. It's not that we hate Medicaid patients. It's not we think that Medicaid patients are a different class of people. That's what's being painted out there in the press. That's what's being painted out there by other doctors out there who are pointing the finger at primary care physicians like me who are saying, why, Dr. Sevilla, are you not taking Medicaid patients? You are a bad doctor. You are a mean person. But the truth is that if we took Medicaid patients, our practice would close. We would not be able to pay the bills out there. We would not be able to keep our doors open. That's why it was a very, very difficult decision that our group made for us not to take Medicaid patients anymore. We had a very long discussion about this over a number of weeks when we made the decision to no longer take Medicaid patients. So for people out there who are bringing a lot of hate to the discussion, I want to tell you there's another side of this. And we lost a lot of good patients. Because, you know, we know, too, that, you know, a Medicaid patient has a story with it and not just an insurance card and not just whatever is out there. I mean, we're, you know, lobbying. We're being active on the state level, trying to improve those payments, improve the reimbursement for Medicaid patients, for us to be able to accept them again. But it's tough. 
It's not just about payment. A lot of people think it's about payment. It's about the regulation in addition to the payment. Accepting Medicaid patients can be very burdensome to an office staff, which I know a lot of people don't want to hear. But there's a lot of rules and regulations along with Medicaid patients. And a lot of doctors, especially in this part of the country here, that do not accept them. And they're being painted in a negative way. They're being painted with a broad brush. And I don't think it's very fair. So that ends my rant on people out there. If you have feedback on it, go to familymedicinerocks.com and, you know, leave your comment over there or on the Facebook page or whatever. But that's my little rant about, about Medicaid patients. So getting back to this article here, this is from the New York Times. This is this is called Dr. Short is Likely to Worsen with Healthcare Law. This is Annie Lowry from July 28th. She continues talking about the doctor shortage. The pool of doctors has not kept pace and will not help experts said. Medical school enrollment is increasing, but not as fast as the population. The number of training positions for medical school graduates is lagging. Younger doctors are, on average, working fewer hours than their predecessors, and about a third of the country's doctors are 55 and older and nearing retirement. The article goes on to say physician compensation is also an issue. The proportion of medical students choosing to enter primary care has declined in the past 15 years. The average earnings for primary care doctors and specialists, like orthopedic surgeons and radiologists, have diverged. A study of the Medical Group Management Association, MGMA, found that in 2010, primary care doctors make about $200,000 a year. Specialists often made twice as much, and it varies from different parts of the country. I can tell you that's less for this part of the country. I'll tell you that right now. The Obama administration has sought to ease the shortage. The health care law increases Medicaid's primary care payment in 2013 and 2014. It also includes money to train new primary care doctors, rewarding them for working in underserved communities and strengthened community health centers. But the provision within the new law expects to increase the number of primary care doctors by perhaps 3,000, increasing by 3,000 in the coming decade. Communities around the country need about 40 5,000, which is over 10 times what is needed. And this article sparked a lot of discussion in the medical community, also the primary care community and, and the family medicine community. I'm going to shift to another article here from a physician who I just met last month. This is from the healthcare blog, healthcareblog.com. This is from uh, Dr. Andrew Morris Singer. This is from, uh, is there a date on this? Let me see. August 11, 2012. August 11, 2012. The title is Reviving the Pipeline, a call for, uh, a call to action for all. Reviving the Pipeline, a call to action for all. And he references the New York Times article that I just, uh, he opens by talking about this New York Times article. He goes on by saying, The primary care workforce pipeline has dried up before the Affordable Care Act was passed. Currently, one out of every five Americans lacks access to a primary care doctor. As a result, up to 75% of the care delivered in emergency departments these days is primary care. 
This overcrowds and overburdens emergency departments, raise costs, and limit emergency departments' ability to what they were designed to do, provide acute emergency care that makes a difference between life and death. So primary care shortage threatens to access not only primary care but also emergency care. How do we get here? Many are quick to point out that primary care doctors' low salaries compared to those of specialist colleagues. Instead, they choose a career in primary care rather than subspecialty. Oh, indeed, choosing a career in primary care rather than subspecialty, meaning walking away from $3.5 million of additional lifetime earnings. That's tough to do when you're looking at a one hundred dollars to $200,000 debt, which is the average debt of American medical student at graduation. And he goes on to be saying uh, that um, – where is the uh, paragraph I wanted to, uh, wanted to bring out here? I thought I had it here. American medical schools must be held accountable for producing primary care providers this country needs. This means not only reinvigorating primary care programming and developing new approaches to recruitment and retention, but also teaching the actual patient's Centered team-based skills that provides need in order to deliver high-value care today. The public can't afford to wait for medical schools to do the right thing. We must leverage our collective power as purchasers and consumers to demand that these institutions break their business-as-usual specialty-focused approach to training. Dr. Morris Singer is from Primary Care Progress. So I encourage you to read that full article. It's a it's a pretty good essay um, from August 11. The title is "Reviving the Pipeline: A Call for Action" at the PrimaryCareBlog.com. The uh, third article here I want to highlight here. This is from the Atlantic. This is from Ben Gallagher, a medical student at the Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons. So this is a medical student essay from August 13 from the Atlantic.com. The title is this, Curing the Physician Shortage, Systemic Change to Breed the Doctors We Need. And he opens by quoting the New York Times article. And he goes on by saying this, As a medical student myself, I see it simply. In exchange for footing most of the bill for my medical training, the government should try to control how and where I practice in the future. And he goes on to talking about debt. Today's average medical student spends four years paying $50,000 in tuition per year and can expect a, a, to graduate upwards of $150,000 in debt. So that is a big thing that's always being talked about. He closes by saying this, a good place to start would be reforming how Medicare and Medicaid reimburse doctors from different specialties, incentive for uh, young doctors to choose primary care, including loan forgiveness, already exists and have been expanded by the Affordable Care Act. Yet these programs are funded by charging taxpayers more, not by paying specialists less. Let me read that again. These programs are funded by charging taxpayers more and not paying specialists less. Unless that changes, he says, it will be profitable. It will always be more profitable to become a dermatologist than general internist. One of the reasons European countries have more primary care doctors than we do is they have smaller pay gaps between general practitioners and specialists. 
The U.S. could easily follow suit. In addition, could pay doctors working in resource-poor areas more per visit and doctors not working full-time less. These measures may sound punitive, but they are exactly what the tens of thousands of Americans who can't find a doctor need. If young people contemplating careers in medicine are turned off as a result, plenty of qualified physicians who are denied admission to medical school each year would be happy to take their places. A dire problem requires a harsh cure. When it comes to financing medical education, it's time the taxpayers demand their money's worth. That's from The Atlantic. That is from Ben Gallagher, medical student at Columbia. Read his essay called Curing the Physician Shortage, Systemic Change to Breed the Doctors We Need from August 13. So what does all this mean, kids? This all means that I'm glad that people are talking about this. I'm glad that it is getting wider discussion. I mean, it's been discussed within the walls of medicine, primary care, family medicine for a long time. If you expand access, are you going to have enough physicians to handle that? And everybody knows it's no, but I'm glad that it's hopefully getting more discussion out there, especially in this political year, this presidential election year. And I appreciate my colleagues out there who are also talking and writing and using social media to get that message out there. But there are ways that you, listening to this podcast, can uh, also share your voice, tell your story. You know, whether you're in medicine, whether you're a patient, whether you're a provider, you're a physician, you're a medical student, there are ways that you can help share your story to help let people know out there, you know, the importance of primary care, the importance of family medicine, and how primary care, how family medicine is going to help fix this broken healthcare system, how, you know, the family medicine revolution has some of the uh, solutions on how to fix things. And I'll be talking about how you can share your story out there coming up right after this break here. You're listening to the Family Medicine Rocks podcast. My name is Mike Savella. We'll take a short break here, and right after this, we'll be talking about the social media angle to this primary care and family medicine message. We'll be right back. to the uh, Family Medicine Rocks podcast. My name is Mike Savilla. So, I mean, everybody knows what the problem is. But how do we let more people know what it is? How do we let more people know the value of primary care in this country, the value of family medicine in this country? How do we let people know about the family medicine revolution? What is that about? Just, Just Google FM revolution for more details. And there's a couple of projects here that I was made aware of. Uh, that are interesting social media projects 
But I encourage everybody out there to kind of look at uh, and be creative about it. Because one of the things that I tell people is that you need to turn emotion into action. You know, all this emotion that you have listening to those stories and being frustrated or, you know, if you work in the healthcare system or you're a member of this broken healthcare system, you have to turn that frustration of this broken healthcare system into action. And uh, I have a couple of uh, projects here uh, which I think are interesting. The first that I was made aware of is uh, from uh, the website called causes.com. And uh, I started looking at that uh, website over the past uh, few days. And it's an interesting website if you've never checked it out, causes.com. And what they have over there, it's called a um, health and justice project. And they want to hear from patients from medical students, from providers, from primary care physicians, primary care providers. And in their little press release here, it goes like this, are family physicians a dying breed? Question mark. In a 2009 article for CNN Money, the writer cites a study from the American Academy of Family Physicians showing an enormous drop in medical students who choose to go into primary care. And they quote uh, my good friend, uh, Dr. Ted Epperly, former AAFP president. He said this, on the eve of health care reform, we have a very real primary care crisis. And this press release from Causes.com goes on to say, in a July 30th post, we shared a story of Dr. John Oakrent and asked for people to share their stories and comment about primary care. We are reaching out to patients, medical students, and primary care physicians who have had something to say about the importance of primary care. For medical students and doctors, we want to hear about the incentives and disincentives you've experienced in making the choice to go into primary care. We want to hear about the people experiences or beliefs that inspired your choice to go into primary care. From patients, we want to hear how a primary care physician has made a difference in your life. On Monday, August 20th, which is next week, you'll receive an official invitation to post a story, a short video, or a photo on the cause.com health and justice project page. It's at causes.com, and you can search for health and justice project. And I have an audio clip here from Dr. Oakland. And this audio clip here shares a little bit of his story when he was a medical student and how a mentor of his helped teach him about medicine, helped teach him about primary care. And there's nothing like people's stories about why they do things. I'm going to play this audio clip here. It's about three minutes. And uh, this is uh, John Oakren. This is from the causes.com website. Here's the story. Change in the healthcare system is not all in the paperwork. What does it mean to be a doctor? What does it mean to be a great doctor? That's a question medical students have to ask themselves every day. 
How will they treat their patients, both medically and ethically? Next, we hear from one medical student whose experiences volunteering at Jericho Road helped him learn what it really means to care for patients. I remember when I was working with Dr. Glick, a young mother came in with her. I think it was a friend of hers. One of them, the, the mother, was on her cell phone. She was cursing up a storm, and her friend was backing up her curses with more curses. And then they had like three kids, all under the age of five, tottering along behind them. It was just like kind of shocking to me, because in a way it seemed like, wow, you're exposing your kids to such awful language, and you're not even really paying attention to them. That's what was going through my head. Um, so I turn to Dr. Glick and I say, what do, you, what do you do about that? And his first words were, well, first of all, we don't judge. I mean, I was already judging them. And I would have gone into that room with those judgments in my head and it would have affected the way I treated them. My name is John O'Krent. I'm a fourth-year medical student at SUNY Buffalo. Third year is the year you just you start really being in, in in the world of medicine every day. You're not in the classroom anymore. You're doing your clinical rotations. I was excited because I was finally actually doing it. I was finally talking to people, seeing people, helping people. But I think I was really kind of turned off by how unhappy everyone seemed. It didn't seem like a nurturing, healing environment. And that's, I think, was the biggest disappointment to me. And it wasn't until I started volunteering here at Jericho Road on, on the Monday nights, I started to see, like, wow, this really does allow you to really enter into people's lives and to really be affected by them and to really affect them. And that, that's when I started to feel that connection that I had craved in coming into medicine in the first place. The successful treatments that I've seen, the successful patient-doctor visits that I've seen are ones in which the patient leaves feeling totally empowered. And I think that in order to provide that, it's more of a change of our national mindset than anything. You're a human being, I'm a human being, how can we treat each other well? getting at people you know social media about stories communicating those stories that you have within you that you're living every day and when we're talking about the future of primary care when we're talking about the future of physicians especially primary care physicians you know, we need to tell everybody out there that, you know, primary care should be valued more, respected more, especially when it comes to payment and hassles and respect and all that kind of stuff. And I know, excuse me, I know, you know, 
I've talked to a lot of people out there. I've talked to a lot of patients. I've talked to a lot of students. I've talked to a lot of physicians and providers. They say that. And they believe that. But you need to take the next step and to share that story with everybody. And why not use social media to do that? I encourage you to go to causes.com, especially in the next few days. Um, They said they're going to be doing a lot more next week during the week of August 20th, at their Health and Justice Project page at causes.com. I encourage you to check that out. The second project that I, I want to share here is uh, my good friend uh, Jerry Tolbert told me about. Jerry Tolbert, is, he's been on this show before. Uh, he's a family physician extraordinaire from Kentucky. And he told me about this uh, project called uh, the DFF, <laughs> the DFF Health Competition. And I say DFF because it stands for the, the Disposable Film Festival Health Project, but don't let the name throw you there. I think it's a cute name. And you can go there by going to uh, the uh, to this address, www.disposablefilmfestival.com slash health. And their site goes like this. Enter your video in the DFF health competition for a chance to win $3,000, screenings, and great other prizes. We're looking for films telling engaging stories about health and health care. Entries should adhere to the following guidelines. Films should be about 10 minutes or shorter. Films should be about or related to health and health care, showing unique perspectives of patients, doctors, and or institutions. Health advocacy, film, and film using data to explain and put a face on the issue. The use of new and emerging media or repurposing old forms and media. The deadline is September 24, 2012, at 10 p.m. Pacific time. First place is $3,000, second place $1,000, third place $500. The winning films will be showcased on the Disposable Film Festival website and at two special VIP screenings. Monday, October 8th, Practice Fusion hosting a rooftop screening event in San Francisco to debut the winning films in conjunction with the Health 2.0 Conference. If you've never been to the Health 2.0 Conference, I haven't been. I've just monitored it over the Internet. The Health 2.0 Conference is huge. Enjoy cocktails and see your work projected on the side of a Union Square skyscraper in front of an audience of filmmakers and health innovators. Now, I've been to Union Square. That is an awesome place to hang out. Thursday, November 8th, you'll be invited to attend a Practice Fusion Connect 2012 event as an honored guest to see your film screened in front of over 1,200 doctors, medical staff, reporters, investors, academics, and thought leaders at the Fort Mason Pavilion. So that's the DFF Health Competition video competition. They're looking for films telling engaging stories about health and health care showing a unique perspective of patients, doctors, and institutions. Now, I know a lot of creative people listen to this show. A lot of people who are in social media listen to this show. A lot of people who support primary care, 
family medicine, family medicine revolution. Again, this is another opportunity to turn that emotion into action, turn that emotion into something very creative. In this case, it is a video for uh, causes.com. It's text, video, or photo. So I challenge you out there, I challenge the listener of this show to put something together. Um, I'm working with some people to to work uh, to put something together, so uh, I'm going to do my part, but I challenge you to do your part because it's not just about being angry about it. It's not just about complaining about it. It's about doing something about it. And this is a fun, creative way. It's not just you. Get a little team together. It'd be fun to try to, you know, see how we can tell our story together. And I think that's going to be a fun way to do it. And I'm going to really try to put all these links into show notes for this episode 270. I haven't been very good with that. Uh, but in this case, there's a lot of good links that I've uh, uh, I've had on this show, and I'm going I'm to put up a... Uh, uh, a show notes uh, blog post, and along with a short video uh, for this uh, for this episode. So, with uh, 18 minutes uh, left, I'm going to take another break, and then uh, I will be reviewing a podcast that uh, found me in the uh, past uh, few days. Fascinating podcast called the Lawson Premed uh, Podcast, and uh, we will be right back. Uh, but before that, I do I do have this cute little audio clip <laughs> because I got a, a, an email this week from an anonymous email this week saying that Mike Savella is the worst marketer of social media out there. You should just like you know your social media career could be so much better, but you just you're you're an awful public relations person. You're an awful marketer. You could do so much more. And I'm like, <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm a one-man show here, kids. You know, I don't have a staff. I don't have any of that type of stuff. But as a cute way to respond to this, as we go to break, this is what I sent back to this anonymous person. You're listening to the Family Medicine Rocks podcast. My name is Mike Savilla. We'll be right back. This is what I told him. My name is McCoy. I'm a doctor. What am I, a doctor or a moon shuttle conductor? I jumped every time a light came on around here. I'd end up talking to myself. I'm a doctor, not a bricklayer. You're a healer. There's a patient. That's an order. I'm a surgeon, not a psychiatrist. Look, I'm a doctor, not an escalator. Spock, give me a hand. I'm a doctor, not a mechanic. I'm a doctor, not an engineer. No, you're an engineer. I'm a doctor, not a coal miner. You keep saying that. Are you a doctor, aren't you? I don't know.
And welcome back to the Family Medicine Rocks podcast, the show that is the unstoppable force of family medicine. Uh, so in the uh, last segment of the show here, uh, I wanted to share with you a, a podcast that uh, kind of found me in the uh, past uh, few days. And I never do this, but uh, I felt moved <laughs> to uh, talk about this uh, podcast. And uh, how this podcast found me was that uh, they uh, gave me a, a shout-out on Twitter. And uh, the gentleman's name is Will. And uh, check out the website at uh, lostinpremed.org. And uh, I have a uh, an audio clip here that I'll be playing here uh, in a little bit here. Uh, but it's been fascinating for me to see, you know, the students using social media to tell their story. And uh, I've talked about it, and I've had the people from the radio round podcast on this show in the past. They are medical students at uh, Wright State University in Dayton, Ohio, and I encourage you to check out their site at radiorounds.org. And uh, I think it's uh, it's encouraging to me. Um, I'm inspired by, you know, the medical students and the undergraduate students that are using social media. I've had undergraduate students on this show in the past that I have interviewed um, and it's great that they are getting out there to tell their story about, you know, how medical school's going, um, why they want to go to medical school in the first place. And I got the shout out here from Will from the Lawson Premed podcast, and uh, you know, he said, you know, it's he wanted to to give his uh, his Twitter followers out there uh, also follow them on Twitter. They're on Twitter at uh, Lost in Premed, and um, on their uh, on their webpage here, they said uh, they've almost re- uh, reached a hundred people. That was on August twelfth, and as I'm sitting right here, they have 169 followers on Twitter, so uh, they are growing nicely there as far as their uh, followers on Twitter. And it's great seeing people starting out. It's great seeing people, you know, stumble along and try to find their try to find their social media voice. You know, this at the end of this month, you know, this show will be uh, five years old, and I remember those early days where, you know, I didn't know anything. I know a little bit now, but I didn't know anything back then. And, you know, as I made the transition from blogging to podcasting, it's a lot, it's, it's a skill set, you know, to tell your story in, in text, to tell your story um, using um, words on a screen or on a page are a lot different than sharing your story um, using your voice, using a podcast. And the Will has done just such a great job of telling people where he has been. Um, I encourage people, and I love hearing episode one of people's podcasts because it really tells me um, why they do what they do why they started podcasting, why they started using social media, and whatever the content is. In his case, why he wants to go to medical school. And you can subscribe to, you know, to Lost in Pre-Med on iTunes. He has a blog there. 
Uh, looks like he has a, an interview or a shout-out to Pre-Med Life magazine. So it looks like he's already being noticed out there. And, you know, this blog has only been up for a few months. He has four episodes of his podcast. His podcast was just picked up by the uh, ProMed uh, Pro Network. And in this clip here, um, in this clip I'm going to play for you here. This is from episode one, and uh, it is a segment uh, that is about four and a half minutes. And the reason that I chose this four and a half minutes was um, he says in episode one that he is kind of a non-traditional student, a non-traditional undergraduate student, will be a non-traditional medical student, and how we started on one path, went to another path, and now he's back passionate about going to medical school. And to give you a little bit of a backstory, you know, as, as he was trying to find his way back, he uh, took uh, uh, EMT classes, certified. Now, his love at this point is emergency medicine, you know, which is, you know, I have no problem with that. You know, my, my father is a surgeon. He's a retired surgeon. And when I was an undergrad and when I was in medical school, I wanted to be a surgeon. So, you know, just because he wants to be, you know, emergency room doc, that's fine with me. Um, but in this four-and-a-half-minute segment that I'm going to play for you, he tells how he his passion for medicine and emergency medicine was solidified with this experience. This is Will from the Lost in Pre-Med podcast, lostinpremed.org. And it didn't take too long before I felt like my passion for medicine had been rekindled. And more specifically, my passion for emergency medicine. I was taking all the stuff that I learned in my EMT class, and I was actually able to use it to practice. Help it out with chest tubes and this. I have hundreds of stories of patients. One in particular that stands out, and I, I tell you this because it's really, I think it was the first affirmation that I had that I was in the right place and going in the right direction. I actually carry the, the strip uh, around in my wallet. You can kind of hear it here. Um, this little 18-month girl came in. It was uh, February 15th, about 5 o'clock at night, and we got a radio call that they were bringing in an 18-month-old girl. Um, she was pulseless and apneic, so she wasn't breathing. Her heart wasn't beating, and they were basically had a breathing tube down her throat breathing for her. The story that we had gotten, which the mother had told the paramedics, was that the little baby was having temperatures of 103 to 105 the last couple of days. When they went to the doctor's office, the doctor said to give Tylenol and ibuprofen, switch them off every couple hours, because if you have a temperature that goes untreated, it could cause the baby to have seizures. Well, the mother had just given Tylenol, and the temperature was still fairly high, so she thought maybe if she put the little baby in the bath to cool her down, then that would prevent her from having a seizure. So she put her in a bath, and the water was fairly cold, and so the baby started shivering. So the mom thought that the shivering was a good sign because the baby had kind of cooled down. Unfortunately, her logic was a little flawed because although she thought that when you're cold, you shiver, in actuality, the only reason that you shiver is so you can build up some body heat. So she was actually making the temperature rise a little bit more. But anyhow, um, once the mother saw the shivering, she went in to go get a towel. And unfortunately, 
in that meantime where she was no longer present in the bathtub, the little baby had a seizure and ended up going under the water and aspirate, which means she got water into her lungs. When the mother came back in the room, her child was underwater, not breathing, so the mother picked her up as quickly as she could and dialed 911. I still remember hearing the gurney come down the hallway and there's a high-pitched hiss of the oxygen. They put the, the gurney up next to, to the stretcher that the firemen had brought in and there was probably 10 or 15 people in there that all picked up this little girl and moved her over our gurney and uh, we got to work. It just seems so surreal. Um, you know, I was I was doing chest compressions, and you know, three of my fingers took up her entire chest, and so I was doing the best that I could to stay out of everyone else's ways. They were looking for a place to start another line and push meds and hook her up to the monitor and do all this stuff. And I can just remember doing compressions um, probably for a good 15 minutes or so. I'm not going to get into it too specifically, but there's certain algorithms that you go down in certain situations, and we had kind of got to the point where you know we were going to give them meds and if they worked they worked and if they didn't then unfortunately we were going to stop because there was really no point in proceeding. I remember the nurse pushing the medication for the last time. I probably did about 10 to 15 more compressions to circulate the medication. Everyone had stepped back from the gurney and then I stood back and we all looked at the monitor just like hoping upon hope that that her heart was going to kick in and she was going to breathe on her own. And and she did. And I remember looking at that monitor and there was a huge sigh of relief and you could actually could hear the elation in the room. And, and I looked around and it was weird because I, it was probably only for two or three seconds. But when I looked around, I could see that, you know, the, the, the fire chief was in there. The battalion chief was in the room. All the firefighters and medics that had been on, on the call. And, and that's not something that usually happens. Usually they're, they're not there to be spectators. They kind of drop off their patient. They take off and then they go and do what they need to do. But this just seemed like one of those cases that was extra special. And, you know, after everyone kind of cheered for, for getting her heart rate back, uh, you know, we kind of went went on with what we would normally do in the code and made arrangements for her to be transferred to UC Davis so she could get, uh, you know, go to the pediatric ICU there. And I remember that after the helicopter left, uh, I went to the ambulance bay and I just started crying. And I called my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, and I just started pouring my heart out to her. This is the first time that I'd ever saved someone while doing CPR, nonetheless a small child, and it, it really got to me. But at the same time, I also knew that this is what I needed to do the rest of my life. I knew this is what I needed to do for the rest of my life. That was Will from the uh, Lawson Pre-Med uh, podcast, uh, lawsonpremed.org. And, you know, listening to stories like that, listening to episode one of a lot of podcasts, you know, especially medically related podcasts, uh, you know, it really kind of centers me. It really kind of reminds me of why, you know, I podcast, why I do social media, you know, because, you know, as you get more popular and you will get more popular, if you're good, you'll get more popular. You tend to, you know, sometimes get lost in the popularity, trying to get more Twitter followers and trying to get more people to follow you on Facebook and things. And, you know, I mean, if I have advice for people starting out or, you know, in the early stages, don't get caught up in that, you know. I mean, you know, sometimes, you know, listen to that, you know, episode one again. <laughs> My good friend Jay Lee uh, from California from the Family Medicine Revolution, he he uh, he asked you know, family docs and all physicians to go back to your personal statement and remind yourself why you do this. And I know a lot of uh, undergraduate people are starting to put together their personal statements, and I encourage you to save that somewhere. 
<laughs> and remind yourself as you're going through this process why you want to take care of patients, why you want the privilege to take care of patients. And that really centers you because as life goes along, you start to get caught up in things and you start to lose your way why you do what you do. And listening to this podcast, listening to episode one again of the Lost in Pre-Med podcast has uh, inspired me, has uh, rejuvenated me, and has reminded me of why I do what I do. I encourage everybody to check out the Lost in Pre-Med podcast, follow them on Twitter, um, you know, check them out on iTunes, especially for the for the undergraduates and medical students who listen to this show. Reach out to Will. I mean, Will at org. Show him some love, you know, give him some advice, you know, and uh, help guide him along a little bit. I know he's going to be a great physician when he gets there. So so that's it, kids. That That is my show here uh, this evening. Thank you so much uh, for uh, joining me. Uh, jam-packed show here uh, this evening. And we are going to be ending with an Elvis song here. Uh, but first, I do want to remind everybody uh, of the Saturday night show here, uh, August 18, 2012 at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. It will be a lot less serious than this show <laughs> a lot different flavor a lot different uh uh you know uh, topic uh matter uh but you know still be cool um uh, my friend and co-host cat will be joining me at 9 p.m eastern time right here on the blog talk radio network and also want to give a big shout out again to my good friends at the future of family medicine blog future family nominated for the most fascinating student blog of 2012 the voting details are soon go to their blog and they will give you that information uh, when it's available. That's all I have for you this evening. My name is Mike Savilla, the next vice president of the United States. No, not really. I don't even know what that means. Uh, uh, check out my digital library of stuff at uh, familymedicinerocks.com. That includes the Twitter feed, the Facebook. I have a YouTube page. I'm on LinkedIn, all that kind of stuff. Again, I really appreciate everybody who listened to the show live who download the podcast, who support my social media projects. I am humbled by your support out there. We'll be celebrating five years of this show at the end of this month. But for now, we will be uh, closing out the show here with Elvis Presley, somebody who has uh, just been fascinating to me and enjoyed his music. My parents have enjoyed his music for a long time. My name is Mike Savella. We will talk to you all very soon. We'll see you on Saturday night here on the show. Good night, everybody. We're caught in a trap. I can't walk out because I love you too much, baby. Why can't you Yeah.